Good morning. Good morning. Anybody drink from this, this water here? I brought some and I, the lid broke just now, so. Even more appealing. Thank you, Taylor. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, I got a call from someone at church, and they said, uh, Chris, would you be willing to do a reflection on uh, a scripture passage at church? And I said, well, I mean, I've never really done anything quite like that before. When would it be? And they said, well, maybe just like the most significant day on the church calendar. <laughs> so I said, why not? I am, I am very happy, though, to be able to contribute in this way. And uh, I do hope that it uh, adds to their time of worship here this morning instead of the opposite of adding to it. So to that end, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God in heaven, Father, please help us as we think about this passage this morning, for we know you are pleased to work through simple means. May your spirit help us now to see you clearly and to see again the amazing grace you have shown to us in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. Amen. Many years ago, when I was, as I am now, a relatively new member of a church, my wife and I were invited uh, over to the home of an older couple. It was very pleasant. And at one point, the husband asked if I'd like to borrow a VHS tape about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I wasn't especially interested, but it felt like he really wanted me to borrow this thing, so I said, okay. The next Sunday, I returned the tape to him at church where he eagerly asked, so, what did you think? Uh, it was great, I said, with as much enthusiasm as I could muster. A very powerful story. At this, he seemed to get a little upset. Story? This is no story, he said, gesturing to the video. This is real life. Stories, though, whether fiction or nonfiction, are very powerful things. They can inspire us. They can change our entire perspective. There was once a king named David who was known to be a pretty great guy, but had done some terrible things. Kings, even those who were men after God's own hearts, don't always react well to being told they've done something wrong. So in 2 Samuel 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to tell David a story. Not a true story, but one that caused David to see his own villainy in a way he otherwise wouldn't have. Jesus himself used fictional stories to explain things. Very often these things were difficult ideas about the kingdom of heaven, and the Lord decided that stories were the best way to express these concepts. Some people's eyes were opened, others were left scratching their heads, but these stories did the work that Christ intended for them. So I told all this to the guy with the Bonhopper video, and he still didn't agree with me. Never let me borrow another video again, which was a big bummer because I really had my eye on his Victor Borgia collection. 
The story I want to think about together for a few minutes is the one read this morning, some by Gene and then a little by Yuri from John 20, regarding one of Jesus' followers named Thomas. We all know Thomas, doubting Thomas. After Christ's resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples, but Thomas wasn't around and was not easily persuaded that these guys saw Jesus or that Jesus had risen at all. Jesus had shown the disciples his wounded hands and side, but Thomas wasn't buying it. He says he doesn't want to just see the wounds. Thomas isn't going to fall for some close magic con. He wants to put his finger right in the wounds for proof. This almost feels like exaggeration for comic effect from Thomas, right? A short time after that, though, Jesus comes for a visit and allows just that. Although upon close inspection of the text, it never actually says Thomas actually physically interacted with Christ's wounds. I suspect that actually seeing Jesus for himself was likely sufficient. In verse 27, Jesus says to him, Do not disbelieve, but believe. And at last, Thomas becomes not doughty at all, as he finally grasps the wonderful truth of the resurrection of Christ. Now, as much as I built up the importance of stories and storytelling a minute ago, there are those who just don't want any of it. No stories, no unwarranted narratives to alter their well-developed senses. Turn off the evening news, turn off the radio, cancel Netflix, tear up the library card. Maybe Thomas was like that. Maybe that's why he wasn't hanging out with his friends when Jesus first appeared to them. He was tired of the chatter. The problem with this is that narrative is not something we can so easily escape. Thomas may have had earmuffs onto the stories swirling around the region at this time, but that still leaves the most powerful narrative of all, the stories we tell ourselves. I wonder what story Thomas was living between Christ's crucifixion and this encounter with his Lord. In 1 Corinthians, Paul famously says that if there is no resurrection, then Christians are most to be pitied. Maybe it was a one-man pity party or a tale of suspicion and paranoia with a Roman soldier or religious leader around every corner looking to finish what they'd started with Jesus. Maybe it was a relief, a story about Thomas being taken advantage of used to build up the myth of a Messiah at great personal cost. Finally, he can settle down, a wife, kids, maybe a goat or two. How about us? What stories do we encounter in our lives? What tales take root in our minds? What are the narratives we're living out and living within? Things happen to us in this life, often unpleasant things that we rationalize in one way or another, even if it's just a simple story that says nothing really makes sense. So we just put one foot in front of the other until one day the trail ends. In verse 30 and 31, John says something about story and belief. After the account of Thomas, his doubts, and the proof Christ gave to open his eyes, John says that actually the point of this whole book he's written about the life and times of Jesus Christ is that we, you and I, all of us, 
may believe, and by believing, have life in the name of Jesus. If we're honest, I think this seems a bit underwhelming, especially for those who are not interested at all in the Christian life, but maybe sometimes even those of us who consider ourselves believers but find the fuel tank of our faith running low. Now, I seriously doubt there are many of us who would say we want to put our hands in an open wound, like Thomas said. But maybe a highly publicized press conference by Jesus, where he took questions and performed some of those sweet miracles we always hear about, would feel more affecting than a book full of very old, often puzzling stories. And yet, there it is. And here we all are. Easter Sunday, and we are gathered to worship our risen Savior. And it's not just us. We're just a very small number of the mass of humanity doing the same basic thing around the globe this Easter. Because why? Because of a good story? There's a movie from my childhood, a child, childhood, which happened to take place in the 1980s, about an enchanted book that is somehow able to physically draw in the reader of the book into the action. There are actually a lot of stories that use this device, as my older daughter would probably tell you. But this one has characters like Atreyu and Falcor the Luck Dragon. Who knows which movie I'm talking about? Shout it out. What is it? The Never Ending Story. Yes. Bonus points if you sing it. I will caution those of you who may be considering revisiting this film that I watched it fairly recently with my kids and found it did not hold up well. <laughs> Drink on the laugh. What is it, though, about the story that makes it never-ending? What property of the book causes the main protagonist, Bastion, to be drawn in and enveloped in its tale? Well, I wouldn't guess it's the plot of the story as the main conflict is a bit of a wrinkle in time ripoff. In fact, we're never really told, it just does. It's what is often called magic. But what it really is, is mysterious. Is this the way scripture, and in particular the book of John is? The idea of something being mysterious can often sound like a cop-out, like luck or go ask your mom. But these can all just be ways of admitting that we simply don't understand everything. If the God of the Bible is who he says he is, all-knowing, all-powerful, outside the boundaries of time and space, just to name a few of his characteristics, then mystery isn't a problem at all. It's actually to be expected. I don't think it's reasonable to expect the mechanism of faith to be something like a can opener. Oh, I see. Uh, you twist this here, this part moves and cuts here, and voila, tuna fish time. It's almost certainly complex beyond our grasp. Although, if we look right at the very beginning of the book of John, this book, according to its author, written so we might believe, we find something very profound and revealing when thinking about the question of the story of Scripture and just how it draws us in. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It turns out that this isn't really a never-ending story that we are magically, mysteriously drawn into. It's actually a non-fiction epic where the author himself willingly, thoughtfully, graciously inserts themselves into the narrative. Not for a lark to just hang out with a few of their favorite protagonists, but to humbly enter into this desperate, broken story in order that many of its most unsavory and incidental background characters might live with him eternally beyond the pages of the story. Like a parent gently waking their child from a dream, God opens the eyes of his children to the story he's been telling all along and allows us to see our stories, the stories we tell ourselves, from within the safety and comfort of his perfect plot structure. It might not be what we expect, though, this story, even after getting our heads straight, so to speak. Although there is one, although there is what one could call abiding joy, there is still deep, deep valleys of heartbreak and disappointment and disconnect and doubts. Christ walked this earth for 30 years, teaching and healing and showing what it looks like to be truly righteous. He tells Nicodemus how God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He shocked his disciples by speaking about his sacrificial mission. They did not believe slash understand, but before long, Jesus was betrayed and crucified. But far from bringing a mere injustice, a final tragedy, it was just as the author intended, because on the third day, Christ rose, showing that death had lost its power, and the author had indeed triumphed in his quest to save his characters. And then there's Thomas. Thomas the skeptic, full of doubts. Christ comes to us this morning in much the same way he came to Thomas, gentle yet persistent, He's here in the passages we have read, in the songs we have sung, in the bread and wine of which we'll soon partake, in this community, this church family he's made us a part of. So look and see your Savior. See his hands where the nails were. Put out your hands and place them in his side. Do not disbelieve but believe and rejoice today and every day in Jesus' resurrection because this true story of our Savior's victory over death, over death and sin, is the power of salvation to all those who believe on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, your ways higher than our ways. Please help us to experience the comfort of living our lives, trusting in you and the truths you have given us in Scripture. Help us to understand the true significance of Christ's resurrection. And please enable us, through your Spirit, to live lives of gratitude and hope, knowing that the empty tomb of Jesus 
gives us hearts full of joy and confidence in his finished work of salvation. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.